those of you who I don't know, my name is Ryan, and I'm the college pastor here at Northway, so we're glad to have you here. Um, sad that it's our last one of the semester, but like Eric said, that means that school's finished, and once you get through with finals, you get a break for a little bit, so I know you're happy for that. And so if this is your first time at Proximity, hey, we're glad you're here, um, and we hope you'll join us next semester as well as we continue to do these. Um, so for, for those of you who know me, you, you know, or many of you know, that I went to Mercer, and many of you also know that I had the opportunity to play football while I was at Mercer. Now, um, I was a, what was called a wide receiver. Um, the ones who run out there, they catch the ball and all that. But I was what's called a scout team player. And all that means is that the only way I was getting in the game is if we were just blowing out a team. The only way I was gonna get in is if the score was nowhere close for me to mess it up. And so that was my job, that was my role. And so when I got in the game, I was just trying to have fun. I knew my role, I knew my responsibility. And so when I got in, I had a couple of things that I always tried to do. The first one is what's called a cut block. Um, what a cut block is, is when you run out and you just dive at the person's knees and try to just take them out, try to flip them over the top of you. It was fun. I didn't get to do that in high school. It was illegal, but it was legal in college, so I figured I'd take advantage of it. And so I'd always get in, and I'd run, and I'd just try to take out the person's legs. The other thing that I would try to do is what's called a crack block. A crack block, which is now kind of illegal in certain circumstances, wasn't illegal then. What I would do is you would run in, and the coach would tell you to put your face mask in the other person's ear hole and you would try to catch them off guard, knock them out, take them all the way out. And I, I promise you, I wasn't a dirty player. Those were just fun things. They were legal when I was there. So when I got in the game, those were the things I was trying to do. So there was one game, we blew a team out. I got in and I went out to my position and I looked in at the safety who was sitting over there on defense and I was like, I got this. I can crack block him. And I watched him play and I was like, yeah, he's not really paying attention. This is gonna go great. And so the play starts, I get in there, and it starts, and I start running. And I take my angle running at him. He's looking at the, the field. And as I'm getting closer, his eyes kind of shifted over to me. And I was like, oh, no. See, this guy was bigger than me, and he was, he was stronger than I was. But I was like, well, I've already committed to this. There's no going back. So I'm just going to go, and I'm just going to throw everything I have into this guy. And so I run, I get close, I throw my body into him, try to put my face mask on his, and he dug in the ground, he bowed up, and he bent down, and he just leveled me. He leveled me. The next thing I knew, I was on the ground, my head was ringing, everything felt fuzzy, kind of slowly got up, and my head just kept hurting. And uh, that night we had some friends over to watch a f another football game and I made them turn out all the lights and I wore sunglasses in the pitch black watching this game with my friends. Um, I did pass the concussion test, but it was three days later and I barely passed it. So pretty sure I was concussed. And when we went back and watched it on film, I actually was laying there on the ground for multiple seconds. I just didn't know it until I finally got up. So here's the thing. I was going after him, I was going to attack him, but because he stood his ground and dug in, he was victorious over me. And, and here's why I tell you that. The, tonight, when we read First Peter in, in chapter 5, we're going to see that Peter is going to encourage us to stand firm and dig in. He's going to say, hey, there's attacks coming from the enemy, 
And I want you to dig in and stand firm against his attacks. And he's going to show us a progression on how to do this. It's a progression that, that builds. It might not seem to all go together, but it all goes together as we walk through the verses. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll be reading the second half of verse 5 all the way through verse 11. And you have a handout with these verses on them if you want to take notes on it. But uh, if you've been with us this semester, you know we've been studying the book of 1 Peter. And we've titled our series Exiles because Peter writes this to who he calls elect exiles. Elect because they're set apart, that they've been chosen by God, that they are Christians. But exiles that since they are Christians, they don't belong in this world. That this world is not their home. And even more so for these Christians, they're Christians who are being persecuted. They are outcast in their society. They are undergoing some intense persecution. And so Peter writes this letter to them to encourage them, to encourage them to come together, to to suffer in light of, of who they are as Christians. And he gives them instruction on this. And coming into verse 5, the uh, verses preceding our passage tonight, he gives instruction to the shepherds, the pastors. And we don't have time this semester to cover that, but I, I hope you'll go and read these verses because they really are uh, just special verses. And he encourages pastors to, to serve their, their people well to shepherd their flock that's been entrusted to them, not out of obligation or compulsion, but, but willingly to love them. And then in the first part of verse 5, he says, hey, likewise, you who are younger, you who are under these shepherds, I want you to subject yourself to these elders, to follow their leadership. And that's where we pick up tonight. And so we're going to work our way through this passage, pull it apart, and see this progression that builds. So starting with the second half of verse 5, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So let's just pause there for a second. Peter here, he says, hey, you should clothe yourselves with humility. He moves from talking to, to the, the pastors and then to those under the pastors. And then he says, hey, all of you, everyone in this body of believers, I want you to clothe yourselves, to put on humility as you move towards one another. I want you to humble yourself underneath the mighty hand of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does this look like and, and how do we do this? And I think a passage that really is very clear on this is Philippians chapter 2. And so we're going to jump there for a second, and these verses are going to be on the screens. And in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see what humility looks like and how to do it, or what humility is and how to do it. So in the, the first few verses in Philippians chapter 2, uh, he's going to encourage them to come together, to, to unify, be of one mind. And it's the same kind of language that Peter's using. But he knows to do this that they need humility. And so that's where we pick up in verses 3 through 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says, hey, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. Selfish ambition has the, the language of campaigning for yourself, of 
going on on your desires, on your whims, on, on what you want, working things for your good, positioning yourself in a way that, that benefits you. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition, conceit being pride, vanity. He says, do nothing in this, but be humble instead. Instead of focusing on me, 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 how does this benefit me? What can I do for me? Instead of having this sense of entitlement, saying that I deserve this, or this belongs to me, or this presumption, he says, I want you to be humble. I want you to count others as more significant. Instead of saying, hey, how does this work for me? What does this benefit me? Or, you know, I don't like the way this happens. I don't like this style. Or I deserve this. They should do this. Saying, hey, how can this benefit you? How can I help you? How can I work for your good? How can I sacrifice some things that maybe I would like on on your behalf? Walk towards one another with humility. Not just considering your self-interest, but the interest of others. Now, he's not saying neglect care for yourself. He says not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. That I'm not just out for me and what benefits me. I know that there's value in serving and loving you well. And so how can I help you? How can I do something that, that serves you? And, and here's the thing. This is not our natural inclination. Our natural inclination is what is going to be good for me? How can I help me? How can I advance myself? I like this. I don't like that. Our natural inclination is me. So how can we have this spirit, this demeanor, this mentality of humility where we say, hey, I might sacrifice some things for myself for the betterment of you? Well, he goes on and tells us in the next several verses, reading verses 5 through 11, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how how do we have this posture of humility towards others? He says, by having the mind of Christ. You want to know how to embrace humility? You look to the ultimate example that is Jesus That Jesus, in all of his glory, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, he humbled himself to the form of a servant. That he who was ruler of all became a servant. That he, in all his majesty, stepped down into his broken creation. To the world that rebelled against him, the world full of his enemies who said, hey, I don't want your rule, I want self-rule, I want to do it my way. A world that was deserving of his wrath, he humbled himself to the form of a man. He became man. He put on flesh. And it wasn't just any man. Like Eric said, he, he was born in a feeding trough. That he wasn't born to some ruling class, he was born to, to some middle, lower, or lower class citizens. 
and the God of all walked on this earth and he was perfect in every way and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. That is the humility that Jesus had. And on that cross he died and he was placed in a tomb but on the third day God raised him in victory. And and here's what happens. For those who trust in Jesus, who would say, I am, who would humble themselves saying, I am broken, I am deserving of your wrath, God, God, I am nothing, I am not deserving of your love, but would then turn and trust in Jesus and his sacrifice, then his righteousness will be placed on them. That they will be forgiven, their slate wiped clean, they go from being enemies of God to children of God. That Peter will say that they go from being dead to born again. That they're given a new life. That they're secured an inheritance that is rich, that is undefiled, that is, that is enduring and forever, that is kept for them and nothing can take it from them. That there will be a day that though they humbled themselves before Jesus, that they will be exalted and lifted high for all eternity in glory with their creator forever and ever and ever. That is what Jesus did for us. And so he says, how can you have humility? How can you submit yourselves to serve one another? How can you stop looking to yourself and your benefit and what's going to be good for you and then serve others? You look to Jesus. Look at how he served you, that while you were his enemy, he stepped down into this creation for you and he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for you. So how much more should you humble yourself and serve one another? How much more should you humble yourself to your brothers and sisters who he died to save as well? How much more should you humble yourself to the lost and fallen world who is exactly where you once were? You humble yourself and serve because that's what Jesus does for you. And and for the Christian, this is the ultimate posture, and it's the daily posture. It's the ultimate posture because we had to humble ourselves to come to Jesus in the first place. We couldn't come to him in in pride. We came to him in our brokenness. And that can't be taken away from us. That, That can't be changed. It's secured. But it's also a daily posture because we know that our hearts are still prone to pride. That we're still prone to look out for our self interest. And that's why Peter will say, hey, clothe yourself in humility. That you have to make the choice to put this on daily. That you have to daily look to the the humility of Christ so that you can humble yourself before others. And he says it's it's clothing yourself. Now, I know that there's all these stereotypes about girls and their clothes and their outfits. And that may may or may not be true for all people. But I'll say it's true in my household with my wife. I learned this. See, for me... I just say, oh, sure, that works, shorts, jeans, whatever, and we're good to go. We're out the door. Sarah, on the other hand, it's a different story. She goes to her two closets. I have one. She goes to her two big closets. She pulls out some clothes, some different combinations, lays them out, kind of mixes and matches, puts one back, brings another out, and then puts that one back, gets the original one back, and then she puts on her clothes and says, hey, do you like this one? I'm like, yeah, that one's great. She says, okay. And then she goes and wears another one. And that's the process. She is intentional about what she puts on. And that's the picture here. See, Peter's saying, hey, you have to be intentional with what you're clothing yourself with daily. You have to intentionally look to Jesus to put on humility. So he says, clothe yourself with humility. 
you put on humility and you humble yourself before your brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can become one and be unified. And he continues, that's the beginning of the progression, he continues in verse 7. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So he's writing to, to people who are undergoing persecution, and they have many cares, many concerns, many anxieties. And he says, hey, you are to take these anxieties and you are to cast them on him. And that's the truth for us, too, that there are many very legitimate cares and concerns that we go through in this life that are going to come into your mind and into your life. And he says, you're to cast them all on him because he cares for you. See, the who you are casting them on matters. The who you are casting your anxieties on matters because he doesn't say just cast them on anyone who cares for you, right? He doesn't say, if they care for you, just go ahead and do that. Although there's value in sharing and caring for one another's burdens within the body of Christ. There's value in that, and we should do that. Um, there's value in me going to Sarah and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, this stress, this anxiety, and there's value in that. But at the end of the day, they can't bear the full load of everything. They can't bear that full power. The who matters. It's not just the, someone who cares for you. When I was reading this, I was like, yeah, it wouldn't make sense for me to say, Maggie, our dog, Maggie, you care for me, so here's my anxieties. Why would that not make sense? She cares for me a lot. She loves me a lot. It wouldn't make sense because she's a dog. It doesn't matter. My job is to care for her. All she cares about is if I'm going to feed her, and if I don't feed her, she gets kind of sassy with me and starts groaning and moaning because I didn't feed her. That's not, she's not going to bear the full weight of my anxiety because she is powerless to do so. He says, you should cast your anxieties on God. Why? Because he is the only being powerful enough to handle it. There is absolutely nothing that you will face that falls outside the scope of his sovereignty. He is big enough and powerful enough to handle any and everything. He is sovereign and in dominion and in control over absolutely everything. And the God that has numbered the stars has numbered the hairs on your head. It's not just that he's powerful, but he's powerful and he cares for you. He loves you. You cast your anxieties to him because he's big enough to do something about it and he's loving enough to work them for your good. See, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him. Cast all these thoughts that come to your mind, all these situations that you tend to cling on to and hold on to, he says, give them to him. And this is directly connected with the previous verses of humility and pride. And here's why. The prideful heart clings to anxiety and to all the cares and all the concerns because the prideful heart says, I must care for me. That if I don't care for me, who else will? I'm the only one who's able to fix these things in my life. I'm the only one who can do something about it. I'm the only one who can work for my good. So the prideful heart clings to anxiety. The prideful heart has problems casting them away. But the humble heart freely casts their anxieties on God. And the humble heart says, I cast my anxieties because I know that God cares for me and will work them for my good. 
See, it's a pride issue. We feel like we have to fix things. We feel like we have to do things. But what Peter's saying is, hey, you should humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before his mighty power, before his good name, before his love and care, and you cast your anxieties on him. Any care, any concern, I don't care if it's legitimate or illegitimate, you place it at the foot of the throne saying, I don't know how this is going to work out. I have ideas of how I want it to work out, but even if it doesn't work out in the way I hope, God, I am trusting that you are powerful and I am trusting that you are loving enough to work this for my good. Jesus, I trust you with this. And so you cast all of your anxieties, all your concerns, all your cares on him because he cares for you. And the progression continues in verse 8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, be sober-minded, have a clear mind. Pay attention, be alert, and be alert because you know that your enemy, the devil, he is prowling around like a lion. He is waiting to pounce and to attack, to catch you when you are vulnerable, when you are not paying attention, and to devour you. Because what John 10.10 says is the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That is, is his intent. That is his motive. And he is waiting to catch you when you're distracted and not paying attention. The, the image that comes to my mind is, again, football, and it, it has to do with that crack block I talked to you about uh, earlier. See, uh, this was prevalent on kickoffs. And what our coaches used to always tell us is to have your head on a swivel. What that meant is when you're running downfield and you're going to the ball and you're going to what you're supposed to do, you need to pay attention because you've got a bunch of people who are waiting just to take your head off when you're not looking. And so I actually pulled two videos from a time when I was at Mercer. If you could put those on there and pause it real quick. These, thankfully, were not me. So I'm going to preface that. I, unfortunately, didn't have my video. So if you watch the guy with the red circle, we're on the kickoff team. We're running down, or they're running down. Watch what he does. Bam. So that's my roommate. And... He ended up with broken ribs and ended up in the hospital with some, I think, organ damage or punctured lungs, something like that. Was not good. That guy kind of crouched down below, ran across the field, and just leveled him. And you would think we would learn to pay attention running downfield, but we didn't. So next play, uh, same guy watching him. All right, you can play. He's going to run across the field, coming downfield, comes across. Bam, another one of my friends wrecked. He got destroyed, and if you, I'm pretty sure he was concussed too. You see him, he just out cold. I told him one time when I was going to show this video, he's like, oh, come on, man, don't do me like that. But what you saw is that guy was kind of prowling around, waiting and waiting to find someone who wasn't paying attention fully, someone who was distracted, someone who wasn't alert, and just take their head off. That's the imagery here of the enemy. The enemy is, is creeping and prowling around, waiting for you to be distracted, waiting for you to not be alert, not to be paying attention, and he's waiting to devour, to pounce, to take you out. Now, I want to be clear. The, the enemy has no power or authority to change your ultimate position before God as a Christian. He cannot strip you from his hands. He is, no, he is powerless to do that. But 
he very much can render you useless and ineffective in the mission that you've been called to. That if you as a Christian have been called to glorify God and proclaim his name to the nations, and if you are, are not distracted and you're not paying attention and he takes you out, he gets you to follow into sin, he can render you ineffective for the calling with which you've been called. And so Peter says, hey, be sober-minded. Don't, don't have clouded mind, clouded judgment. Be watchful, be alert, don't be distracted. And again, I think this is tied to the pride and to the anxiety that when we have anxieties in our mind, concerns that swirl around that we grip onto and think about and they spiral and spiral and they take root in our heart. It clouds our judgment. It clouds our minds. And we become distracted because we're focused on all these things. And when we're distracted, it's easier for the enemy to devour. It's easier for the enemy to help us fall into sin. Now, I want to be clear. The enemy also cannot make you sin. We can't just say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. That's not true. You sin, I sin because of my desires. The desires in my heart, the things that I want, I act on them, and that is sin. The devil can't force you into do it. Now, he can fan the flames of those desires. He can create circumstances and temptations to, to lure you into acting on those desires, but he does not have the power to force you to act on those desires. Think about fishing and like a fishing lure. A fishing lure goes down and it entices the fish to bite it. It doesn't force the fish to bite. The fish bites because the fish wants to bite. It just lures it and tempts it into doing so. And that's the picture of the enemy. The enemy's goal is to drive a wedge between you and your relationship with God. His goal is to help you go and, and fall all over those sinful desires that you have, all over those, those uh, sinful wills that you want to follow. His goal is to get you to fall down that path and be distracted and to be set apart. And so you are ineffective in your mission. And, and when you're clinging to anxieties, when your judgment is clouded, it's so much easier to say yes to sin. It's so much easier to be caught off guard when you are insecure about yourself and the enemy gives you the situation where you're with all these people and they're all gossiping, it is easy for you to give way to that gossip. When you are just with your friends and they're doing things that you really don't even want to do, but there's a part of you that kind of wants to and you're, you're, uh, you're just anxious and stressed and, and so it's easier for you to give way to whatever it is that they're doing. When you're alone with your thoughts, it's easy for you to, after you've been battling anxiety, to just give way to sin because it's clouded your judgment and rendered you vulnerable and weak. And it's the same thing with pride. When you have this entitled and prideful heart, you might say, you know, it's been a long semester. I'm just stressed. I've got a lot going on. I've worked hard. You know what? I deserve this. You know, I deserve whatever this is. I can go out. I can do whatever I want to do. It's really not a big deal anyways. It's, it's one semester. It's college. Who cares? I'm forgiven anyways. And so you go down that path, giving way to your desires, giving way to sin because of the pride that's in your mind and in your heart. But Peter says, no, no, no. Don't, don't give way to this. Clear your mind. 
Cast your anxieties, humble yourself and cast your anxieties before God so that you can be clear-minded, so that you can be alert, so that you won't give way to the desires because you know the devil is prowling and waiting to attack you. And this being alert, it carries an active role too. This is the same language Jesus used to his disciples when he took them to Gethsemane and Jesus goes and prays and they all fell asleep and he says, no, wake up. Stay awake, be watchful, be alert. The enemy's waiting to tempt you. You need to pray. And so this is the picture that we are to be alert, we are to be clear-minded, and in this alertness, we are to take everything to God. We are to ask him to keep us alert, ask, us, ask him to, to protect us from the enemy, ask, us to, to, uh, ask him to be able to choose him over the, the temptations of the enemy. We are to be alert in our prayers because we know the enemy is waiting to attack us and to devour us. And then he concludes the progression in the last verses, verses 9 through 11. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says, hey, as you are humbling yourself and you're casting all anxieties on him and your mind is clear and on alert, aware of the enemy, he says, hey, I want you to resist him when he comes to attack, to stand firm in your faith. He doesn't say stand firm by your might. Stand firm in your strength. Stand firm in your intelligence. Stand firm in anything else. He says, stand firm in your faith, in your trust in who God is, your trust of his character, in your faith of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, how he humbled himself to the point of death for you on a cross. Stand firm in that and resist the enemy. Resist his attacks. In James 4, 6 through 7, it uses similar language. He Actually, in the verse 6, he quotes the same verses of God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He says, submit yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. Grow in your trust and your faith and your belief in who he is and his character. And as you do that, resist the enemy, and when you resist him, he flees. You will overcome these temptations that as you dig in deep and you stand firm in your faith and trusting in him and believing in him and you're asking God to keep you alert and asking God to help you believe his promises, help you believe his truths, then as you do that, you will resist and lean away from the temptation of the enemy and you will cling tightly to your God who loves you, who dies for you. That's what he's encouraging them to do. That's the picture of the story I told you earlier. When the guy laid me out, he dug in, and then he laid a blow to me. That's the picture of us, that as we dig in and stand firm in our faith, we will be able to overcome and be victorious over the temptations of the enemy. We believe the character of God. We believe that he is dominion over all things, that he is sovereign over all things. We believe that he is working them for our good. We believe that there will be a day where we stand in eternity with him forever and ever and ever. And that's what he's, how he's encouraging these believers here. Peter, 
He says, hey, I know you're suffering. I know you're going through difficult times. But know, one, you're not alone. That there are many others, other brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling the same as you are. But also know that this suffering is just for a moment. That yes, you're suffering for a little while, but there will be a time where your suffering will be no more. And I'm, I'm not minimizing what you're going through right now. I know it's terrible. But you need to understand that this is just a blip on the timeline of eternity. That this is going to be some faint memory compared to the richness and the glory and, and the eternity that you'll spend with your Father who loves you. So cling to that hope. Cling to the character of your God who loves you so much. Cling to him and resist the enemy resist his temptations stand firm in that faith faith and endure and be a light to the community and that's what he's calling for us and so just kind of tying a, a bow on it for us walking through this progression he says i want you to humble yourself humble yourself and as you humble yourself before god cast all your anxieties on him because he is powerful and because he loves you be alert, be vigilant, knowing that the enemy is out waiting to attack, waiting to, to come and catch you off guard, waiting to try to get you to stumble into sin. And as you're alert, trust God. Believe him. Believe he is who he says he is. Believe in his promises. Believe in his sovereignty. Believe in the hope that you have in him that is living and active, that will never fail you. Trust in that. I'm going to, I want to close by kind of giving us some, some active reflecting to do. So if you will close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want us to be able to kind of reflect on, on where we are. Because we all fall somewhere in this process. We all fall somewhere in this progression that Peter lays out for us. For, for some of you, um, you're in here and, and you're not a follower of Jesus. And we're glad you're here, but, but here's the reality. This first verse in verse 5 where he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble is very true. That we've all sinned and rebelled against God, and we are all by nature his enemies. But we so often, um, we have this disposition of just pride. And we say, hey, well, it's really not that bad. It's not a big deal. Like, am I really God's enemy? Like, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't done this. Like, it's not that bad. My sin's not that bad. And this pride swells within us. Or we give way to the pride that, well, even if this all is real, whatever, I really don't need it. Like, my life is fine. It's all good. And we buy into the lie that, that we can do it ourselves and that it'll work for our good, whatever. And this pride prevents us from humbling ourselves before God. And you need to understand that this verse is very much true, that God opposes the proud. That if you are prideful and say, hey, God, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. I can do it myself. Then he's going to say, okay, I'll give you exactly what you want. And he's going to give you a life and an eternity without his goodness, without his presence, without his nearness. But you need to also understand that it's also true in this verse when it says he gives grace to the humble. That if you would humble yourself before him, acknowledging your desperate need for a savior, acknowledging that you are by nature his enemy deserving of his wrath and judgment, 
if you would humble yourself before him, but then turn to Jesus, then you too can have your sins forgiven. That if you would believe and trust in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and believe that God raised him from the dead, but that you would trust that it was done for you personally, then you, your sins are washed away, that you are given the Holy Spirit, that you are have this inheritance that is secured for you, that is kept, and that you will one day be exalted and lifted up to dwell with your creator God who loves you and died with you forever and ever and ever. And my hope and my prayer is that you would do that. And maybe it's tonight, maybe it's some other time, maybe you've got questions about this, I wanna encourage you to, to ask them. Talk to one of your leaders, one of our leaders, talk to one of your friends. But I hope and I pray that you'll do that. For, for the rest of you, for many of you, you're followers of Jesus. And the truth is you, you fall somewhere in this progression. We tend to struggle from time to time. And so, so for some of you, your struggle is there in that first big part. It's the humility. That you don't wake up every single day and clothe yourself in humility. You wake up, you live your life, and you kind of do your own thing have this sense of entitlement, this air of arrogance about you, rarely if ever serve others, and when you do, if you're honest, it's, it's for your own glory, and so you need to understand that this pride is detrimental, that it is opposite of the gospel that you believe in, and that, that you are, are really someone who is in desperate need of God's grace. And so my, if this is you, my call to you is to look to the cross. Look at Jesus. That if the ruler of all things and creator of all things can humble himself to the point of death or on the cross, then how much more so do you need to humble yourself before others? And so I, I hope that you'll repent and you'll humble yourself before God, realizing your desperate need for Jesus and realizing the grace that's been poured out on you. Others of you, it's, it's the anxieties. You cling to anxiety when you don't have to. These lies from the enemy are whispered in your mind of, of what's going to happen in my future or how am I going to provide or if I don't do this and you entertain these whispers from the enemy it spirals in your mind and in your hearts and you internalize it and it roots in you and you cling on to the concerns and anxieties of life and you need to understand that you do not have to do that. You can't fix it yourself. But you know someone who can. So you're called to cast them all, throw them all at the foot of the throne. To humble yourself saying, God, I know that you care for me and you love me and I know that you're powerful and I know that you're working for my good. And so you need to repent and throw your cares and your anxieties and your concerns at the feet of the throne. Others of you, it's with, with being sober-minded and watchful that in reality, you're walking through life with clouded judgment. You're walking through life distracted by all the cares of the world. You're distracted by school. You're distracted by friends. You're distracted by anxieties. You're distracted by all these things, and you don't even realize it, but you are making yourself vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy that you are giving the enemy a foothold to knock you off course, to drive a wedge in your relationship with God. And for some of you, 
it's not that you've made yourself vulnerable, it's that you've made yourself vulnerable and he's already been attacking. That you have acted upon all these desires and acted upon all these temptations of the enemy and you're pursuing sin and what started off as a moment has now become a season and a pattern and you and your relationship with God is, is far. You're far from it. And essentially, you have been ineffective with the calling that you've been called. You've been ineffective at advancing his kingdom and glorifying him. For you, you need to know, I, I intend not to just cast shame on you. What you need to understand is the grace and the love that you have. That you can return humbly to the foot of the cross. Humbly to the throne of God, knowing that your sins all have been dealt with and crucified on his cross. And so I plead with you not to be slow to return to your God who loves you. I plead with you to run with confidence knowing that your sins were dealt with and that they are buried and they're gone and that your eternity is secure. Remember the identity that you have in Christ. Remember that you have been born again. Remember the living hope with which you have and live as an exile. Live differently. Live as a child. Be a light in the dark and broken world so that when others see you, they will see the light that you have and they will look to the source of that light. And their hearts will be stirred to worship and glorify your Father who pulled you from the pits you high and exalted you, calls you son and calls you daughter. So if that's where you are, I really do pray that you humble yourself before God. That's the heartbeat of all of this, that we would stand firm in faith, no matter where we are in the progression. If you're an unbeliever, you humble yourself before him for the very first time. If you're a believer, you continuously clothe yourself with humility before the throne. You find yourself at his feet trusting that he loves you and trusting that he's working for your good. So I want to encourage you tonight, wherever you are, to do that. I'm going to...